For those of you that may be visiting with us or have joined us in the last couple of weeks, we've been examining the serious decline in morality and ethics in our society, and we've seen the consequences that result. We've seen how evolution, which is basically the denial of God as our creator, and how things like secular religions, like secular humanism, which uh, basically its basic tenet is that man is in control. Obviously, if God doesn't exist and he didn't create us, then we're on our own. So secular humanists try to portray a picture that we're in control somehow of our destiny. We just don't know where we're going. And uh, then the, the problem of moral relativism, which is basically there are no moral absolutes. Everything is relative to the situation or the circumstances, and it's not right or wrong necessarily in and of itself. It becomes maybe right or wrong depending on what's going on. So we've seen how these things have permeated our culture, and they've also led to the confusion that many of these philosophies create. Perhaps a good example of this is found in the story of a lawyer that was explaining the concept of ethics to his teenage son. And I've changed the names to protect the guilty. But anyway, it was just, you know, it's just a lawyer. And he was explaining ethics to his teenage son, and he said this. Suppose a client comes into your office for some legal advice about a contract. You discuss the matter and then bill him $100 for the advice. The client pulls out his wallet and hands you a crisp $100 bill and then leaves. Well, as you're putting this new bill in your wallet, you see that he's given you not one but two $100 bills. Now comes the ethical question. Do you split the money with your partner? See, I'm really, I'm really glad that you laughed because it means that you've noted some ethical violations prior to that question, and that's good. Now, the same lawyer, the devil, comes into his office one day. And he sits down and he has a proposition for him, and he sits across from his desk and he says, the devil says to the attorney, I'd like you to sell me your soul. The lawyer, prone to negotiating, thought for a second, says, well, what do you have to offer? The devil says, well, in exchange for your soul, I'll give you all the money you could ever want, plus fame, power, and respect. The lawyer thought for a couple of minutes and said, what's the catch? Now, that's, now that is scary that you don't get that. Now, what's the catch? Now, see, that's the whole problem with ethics and morals. It's like, well, what's the problem there? I'm going to sell you my soul. Well, what's the catch? Okay, forget it. You know, you know. Like Tuesday, Tuesday, you're going to go, that was so funny. <laughs> and I won't be there to hear it or appreciate it, but you just call me and, and, you know, if you're laughing on the other end, I'll know why. But that's all right. Man, this is really scary. Because oftentimes we don't realize the price that we pay for compromise. And that really is the truth. You know, the price that we pay, as we saw over the last couple of sessions, the price that we pay in, as a society for walking out on our marriages the price that we pay for not being there, quote-unquote, for our children. There's a serious price that we're paying, and it's, exact, and it's exacting a very heavy toll in our culture today. The price that we pay for all of these things, as we buy into the lie as adults that, hey, quote-unquote, I have the right to be happy too. See, there's a problem that we have in our culture, and this is what's permeating our society. The last time we were together, I, I would hope that we walked away sensing an urgency as parents, and as grandparents to be more involved in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. I did a, w a wedding yesterday, and I, and I was talking to some people as they come up, and we were just kind of mingling around, and a gentleman came up to me and said, you know, I want to talk to you about something. I said, great. And I, you never know where these are going to lead. But he said, 
you know, I teach, I teach high school in Palm Springs. And he really appreciated, and basically what he said was, I really appreciated what you said during the course of the wedding because it was to the point, and, you know, I, I was, you know, to the point. And um, it was to the point, it was exact, or it's things that people need to hear. And uh, try to do it in a sensitive and compassionate way. And, um, but nonetheless, he said, you know, I really appreciate what you had to say because I, as a high school teacher, one of the things that is just absolutely destroying our schools is we've got problem with drugs, we've got problem with gangs, we've got problem with teenage pregnancy. I mean, the schools are basically falling apart around us. And, and I asked him this question, which was fascinating. I said, well, what do you think the solution is? And this man, who is not a Christian, as far as I can tell in the course of our conversation, he said, you know what I found to be really helpful? Parental involvement. <laughs> I said, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, because that's basically what we've been discussing, and that's so true. Parental involvement. The involvement of parents in the lives of their children. Wow, isn't that, I mean, that's like revolutionary, isn't it? And what's sad about it is it's like a fresh new concept for many of us because over the last 20 to 30 years, we have gotten so far away from being involved in the lives of our kids or grandchildren that when someone says, you know, we need to get our parents involved again, it's like, wow, that's an interesting idea. But the problem is, you know, as we spend more time with our children or our grandchildren, we need to know how to make that time productive. And that's basically the direction that we're going to go this morning because we're going to take a look at four, what I would call four essential ingredients to a good family. And what I mean by good, because good is synonymous to a large degree with God because God is good. And the earliest of children, as they learn their prayers, as they pray at a meal, God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. God is good. The essence of everything good is found in the character of God. So the essentials for a good or godly family are really what we need to get nailed down because that's really what it's all about. And so as we go through this, there's going to be four of them that we're going to discuss as we go through it, but they're, they're critical because as we're involved more with our children or grandchildren, we need to understand what that involvement should entail. Number one, the first thing that we need to understand is that for the family to survive, we must have parents who love their children properly. And it's critical that we understand what it means to love someone properly because we all have a definition of love. The inference or implication in Titus chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 is that we don't know how to love properly. And that's so true, and I'll explain it as we go along. It says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Whether you pick up or understand this or not, basically what God is saying, he's indicting all of us and saying that we really don't know how to love one another. And we all have different definitions of what it means to love. But the, the implication is we don't know how. And that's true because God's love is so different than the love that the world tries to define as love. 1 Corinthians 13, a great chapter on godly love, defines specifically the character of love that's really rooted in the person and the character of God. We don't know how to love. The point is, we don't know, you know, women as they get married, the, the point is very clear. They don't know how to love their husbands as God desires them to love them. The purpose of older women or those who have been married that understand the love of God is to teach younger women how to accurately love their husbands. 
also to love their children. Now, if we went around the room, I don't think anybody here would say that they didn't love their children. There are times where we don't like them, but we would certainly never say we didn't love them. We love them, but maybe we don't like them. And the problem is that we don't know how to define love. So basically, there's nowhere else to turn. But since God is love, and in him we find all of us, 1 John chapter 4, First uh, John 4 talks about, Beloved, let us love, love, love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. We love because he first loved us. So love is rooted in the person and character of God. So what we need to understand is how to love one another properly, specifically as we deal with our children. If you are going to be involved in the lives of your kids, you need to know how to love them properly. Grandparents, you need to know how to love your grandchildren properly, and on it goes. So the first thing that proper love involves, according to 1 Thessalonians 2.7 and also Psalms 127, 3-5, is that loving your children is teaching them that they are truly a blessing from God and not a burden. Now, I realize that this is difficult sometimes because what it, what it requires is that we give up certain things. Anyone who has children realizes that there are tough choices to make. I mentioned it the last time we got together. You can't have it all. You can't have some bustling career and climbing the ladder of promotion and fame and fortune for yourself because, quote, I have a right to be happy. And you can't do what God demands of you to do in the lives of your children either. There's a trade-off. Everything in life is a trade-off. Which direction are you going to go? Are you going to spend time on yourself, developing yourself, promoting yourself, or are you going to take that same amount of time and instill it in the lives of your kids? See, this is a difficult question, and it all is rooted back to whether you believe that your children or child is a blessing from God or a curse. I was driving down the street the other day, and, I, and uh, it was a, um, I think it was, a, well, yeah, actually what it was was a Ferrari, and uh, as, as I was going down the, the street, the license plate said this, here's my kid. Well, what's the, what was the statement that was being made? Well, simple. I always wanted a Ferrari, and I knew that if I had children, I wouldn't have the money to spend on the Ferrari. Here's my kid. Ha, 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 Right? The difficulty with all of that is, I've never heard a Ferrari yet, and I've been to many funerals. I've done some myself. I've never seen a Ferrari pull up down the middle of the aisle and say, man, that was some great owner that I had. I have never heard a Ferrari get up and say anything gracious about the person that's ever driven it. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's a problem here. There's a problem when parents believe that their children are not blessings, as the Bible clearly teaches. First Thessalonians 2.7, Paul says this. But when talking about being among the, the Thessalonica people, he said, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I like that. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. There's a word picture that's being used here. And men, I want you to get a picture of this because if there's any indictment against men, it's the fact that we are not as compassionate or as gracious or as tender as we need to be when we deal with our children. And I want to just blow out the door right now the stereotype of any man who feels like he can't hug his children, he can't tell his children he loves them, he can't kiss his children, he can't be involved in their lives, and somehow or another he's less of a man for being tender. Well, the Bible teaches the exact opposite, and that's why we need to learn how to love according to what God has to say and not according to what we've learned traditionally from the world. A man doesn't cry. Jesus wept. I don't understand this. Paul wept bitterly when he said goodbye to his friends as he was leaving on his mission journeys. See, there, there's a stereotype that we need to just blow up and destroy right here and now. There's a stereotype that you can't hug and kiss and caress and love and, 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 and be tender to your children. 
That's nonsense. Paul says we are tender, that we are just like a nursing mother who tenderly cared for her children. Psalm 127 talks about arrows as an asset. The children are a blessing from the Lord. We need to understand also that it's easy to forget that it's God who has blessed us with our children. It is not us who decides to have them. We may think we have some program or schedule of when we want to have our next child. But without the blessing of God, who is the author of all life and creates all life, uh, we couldn't do anything without his help, without him doing what he does. So arrows or, or a source of strength or value or worth. Here's basically, in a nutshell, what we, what we struggle with. Do your children feel like they're a blessing? Or they feel, are they led to feel like you are giving up so much because of them. You struggle with the cost of raising children. Graduation costs, car insurance, food, bills, clothes, schooling, utilities, medical expenses, braces, stitches, carpool service, wedding expenses. All of those things are really a struggle between two things. Materialism or spiritual value. That's really it. In a nutshell, cares for, cherishes. You know, I think it's easier sometimes with, with babies to cherish them the way God wants us to, isn't it? I mean, think about it. What, what, what is, the, what is the, the, a life of a baby, uh, basically, what's involved? One, putting in food in one end and getting it to come out the other. I mean, that's their whole job description in a nutshell. I mean, that's what they do. They're food processors. That's all they are. And, and, and that's all that they do. And that's, you know, they don't talk back. You don't have to run them around to their games. Uh, you don't have to, you know, sign up for certain things at school. You don't have to get them, you know, this or that or the other thing. You don't have to go buy them a ball or a bat or a soccer ball or whatever and all the stuff that goes along with the things they get involved in. See, babies, I mean, you just, you feed them, you change them, you burp them, you put them to bed. That, that's easy. But when they get older, it gets a little more difficult to look at them as a blessing. You know, it's like we got this Mark Twain philosophy. You remember Mark Twain? He said, when a kid turns 13, you put him in a barrel with a lid on him and you feed him through the knot hole. <laughs> and he said, it, when they turn 17, you plug up the knot hole. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that's what you've got to look at. I mean, what do your kids feel like? Do your children feel like they're blessings or are they burdens? You know, we've got an epidemic in our culture, teenage suicide. We've got an epidemic, teenage runaways. I told you last week there's enough kids to fill up every major stadium in this country on any given evening that, that resort to prostitution to support a drug habit. We've got a problem with teenagers and we've got a problem with kids in our culture who don't feel like they're a blessing. And it all starts with their parents. That's what it boils down to. I mean, if your kids are a blessing, it wouldn't hurt to tell them that, you know, you're a blessing from God. And you know, I've been convicted about what was said this morning and I realize that I've been concentrating too much on all the things, the material things, the cost. And I just want to tell you that somehow or another I got sidetracked and I love you and you're a blessing from God and your mom and I love you and we prayed for you and we're, we thank God today that we had you and if you want we'll get out the video of your birth and we'll get out the slides or the pictures and I know that'll really, it's like, hey, that's probably far enough that folks, you know, we appreciate that, that's great, but not, don't, please don't get the videos and slides out. But, but it wouldn't be bad, a bad idea to tell them that. See, because we, this shapes their future. It makes an impression on them. I like the poem that I ran into. It says, a piece of clay. It says, I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days were past. The feel of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, but I could change that form no more. 
says, I took a piece of living clay and gently formed it day by day and molded with my press and art a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress wore, and I could change it nevermore. What's the impression? What's the lasting impression that we're leaving with our children? Because if my children feel like they're a blessing from God, they will have an impression that's made upon them that when they get married, God willing, and they have children, God willing, then they'll also look at their children as a blessing from God. That's the impression. That's where it starts. That's where the legacy begins. And we need to understand that and grasp hold of that. But we also need to understand something else. And that is that proper love, if the family is to, to survive, parents need to understand that we need to have compassion for our children. I love this. In Psalm 103, God gives us a, a real good understanding of what it means to be compassionate. And as we look at this particular psalm, identify for a moment, not only with your children, but think about how God sees us. Psalm 103, we read this in verse 13 and 14. It says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are dust. The relationship between God and man and also man and children is found in this particular passage where he says, you know what, God realizes, and this is a wonderful truth, God realizes that we are fragile, he made us, he understands our frame, he knows that we are prone to wander, the Bible tells us, he knows that we are prone to be rebellious against God, and he is compassion, and he is loving, and he is kind, and he is forbearing, and his love is patient, and it's a wonderful truth when it comes to the character of God as he demonstrates it toward us. So not that it gives us license to go out and do anything that we want that's wrong against God because there's certainly a price for sin, but what it does help us to understand as we relate to one another and also as we relate to our children is that we are prone to make mistakes. We are prone to do that which is wrong. The important thing as far as character and integrity is concerned, when we are confronted by a wrong, how do we respond to it? The Bible says we need to confess it before God. We need to agree with God that what we're doing is wrong. That's the sign of a godly man or woman who, when confronted by wrong, says, I have sinned against God, I have sinned against man, and I am wrong before God, and now I will do whatever is required of me to do to make it right as best as possible or to receive the forgiveness of God. None of us are perfect. None of us are. And, the, and think about it as you deal with your children. They are going to mess up. Compassion is understanding that they're going to mess up. Compassion is basically expecting perfection out of our kids, but as I've said before, accepting humanity. God expects us to live a life that's pleasing to Him because He's given us His Holy Spirit to indwell us, to give us the power to do that. But He also understands that humanity is involved and sin is involved, and that's what the provision of forgiveness is all about. See, there's a healthy tension between the two. God says as parents, as mothers, fathers, grandparents, we need to expect perfection from our children, but also accept humanity as well. We need to understand. We had a couple last week that came to our house, and we were talking about basically they're a younger couple, and they have this, just a small child. She's like two years old. And it was teaching, her, teaching them the, the difference between defiance and childish irresponsibility. And it's so important to understand the difference between the two. 
Willful defiance or childish irresponsibility, knocking something over at the table, forgetting your sweater at school, those types of things are just childish irresponsibility. I mean, if you've had children, how many of you had children? How many of them went through that Bambi stage? You know what stage that is? It's like when a newborn, like, thing, is, any kind of animal is born, and you see them get up and they start going and they're banging into everything, they're smacking into everything. I mean, every one of our kids, as they grow up, they go through this, this stage. They're like, you know, they're banging and knocking and breaking and knocking things down. And see, that's just part of, of human development, right? Well, you don't treat that and discipline that as if when you tell them to be home at a certain time and they don't show up, that's willful defiance. That's rebellion. And there's a difference between the two, and we need to understand that. And, and as we go through this, we'll see that there are times to have compassion, but there are also times to say, wait a minute, what time were you told to be home? What time were you told to call? What's wrong with your grades? What's happening at school? You know, what are you doing? See, there's a difference between the two. And we need to have compassion on the humanity, but we also need to understand what God expects of all of us. It doesn't mean that you, you, you slough off poor habits, laziness, no discipline, things like that. We'll talk about it but we need to have compassion. Number three, we also need to, to warn our kids. If you're going to spend time with them, you need to be warning them of the dangers that are in our culture. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21, if you've got your Bibles, turn to it for a second, and see that there are dangers in our culture as parents and, and grandparents, we need to warn our children. First Corinthians 4, starting with verse 14, Paul writes this. He says, I, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. The word admonish means I'm writing these things to bring about a change of heart. I'm trying to teach you or help you understand that there's dangers and we're going to bring about a change of heart. I write these things not to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. What a great principle that is for parents as they deal with their children. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to make you look like a fool. I'm not trying to embarrass you in front of your friends or in front of other people. What I'm doing is, as you take them aside, I'm warning you. I'm trying to bring about a change of heart so that you understand the danger in going about things the way that you think you're going to go about them or go in the direction that you're going. I'm always teaching, constantly teaching, constantly admonishing, trying to change their hearts so that they understand because our actions always start in our hearts. So if our heart changes, our, the right actions will follow. So he's saying, I'm not trying to embarrass you. What I'm trying to do is change your heart. For if you have to have countless tutors in Christ, yet would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I weren't coming to you, but I will come soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not ex consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He goes, what do you want? It's your choice. There's choice A, which is the rod of discipline, or choice B, you can change your heart and change your own mind and go about living a way that's pleasing to God. What a great, I mean, that's what it all boils down to when you're dealing with your children or grandchildren. You've got two choices. You can do things the right way or God's way, or you can do things the wrong way or your way. And if you do it the wrong way and your way, these are the consequences that come with it. So it's your choice. But the choice is never that great. So it's always a choice that, well, let's see. I do it the right way, there's benefits. I do it the wrong way, there's consequences. I do it the right way, I find favor with my parents. I do it the wrong way, I get a whooping. Now, gee, let me see. 
it's not, I mean, it's not, a, you know, it's, it's not that heavy academically here. All of us have hope as we instill this in the lives of our kids. And so basically that's what Paul was saying. Now, the thing is, what do you warn your children about? What do you warn them? Let's, let's have some fun here. What do you warn your kids about? At different ages, let's, let's just put that, at different ages, you warn them about different things. Are we all in agreement there? Okay. As the younger they are, they're warned of certain things. You warn them about strangers. You warn them about drugs. You warn them about the consequences of sin, doing what's wrong. You warn them about uh, peer pressure, the wrong friends to hang out with. Yeah, what do you do? What? Lawyers. <laughs> Good. What? There you go. You warn them, hey, you, you t teach them absolutes, moral absolutes. You teach them about premarital sex. You teach them about the dangers that go along with sex outside of marriage. You teach them about peer pressure. You teach them about being around the wrong kids. You teach them about drugs and alcohol and the price that it exa You teach them about, you know, you warn them about being lazy. You warn them about what it means to not work hard in life. You warn them about snakes and spiders when they're little. You warn them about traffic when they're small. You warn them about respecting or not respecting authority. You warn them about the dangers of not being punctual and what kind of impression that leaves on people. You warn them about, like you said, their sexual contact, conduct. You warn them about no absolutes. You warn them about evolution. You warn them about humanism. You warn them about moral relativism. You warn them about all these things. Because that's the culture that we live in and that's what they're inundated with. And when we're together, proper love warns their, you know, parents warn their children about how real these dangers are. And we teach and we instruct as we go along. And you know the best way to do it? Paul lays it out. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. What's the best way to warn your children about how to act or how not to act? Live it out in front of them. Be a role model. Be a proper role model. Live it. Live what you say you believe. If these things are so dangerous, mom or dad, then why do you do some of them? That doesn't make sense to them. It never made sense to me, and it never will make sense to anybody. If it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's dangerous, it's dangerous. And it's just as dangerous if you're 60 or if you're 6. You follow what I'm saying? Paul knew that. He said, hey, live like I live, and you won't have to worry about it. We need to understand that as parents, we are required by God to be the primary role model for our children. Us, the parents. It's interesting, I, I ran across an article the other day. Um, this gentleman's the president, Fred Bear, is the president of the Christian Film and Television Commission. There's just one excerpt that I want to read to you because it, it very vividly demonstrates this truth. He says, the average child watches 15,000 to 40,000 hours of television by the time he's 17. He goes to school for about 11,000 hours, hours and he spends only 2,000 hours with his parents. He says, looking back on my days as director of the television center at C City University of New York, I remembered the educational theories called for a three-step process. They were this. One, modeling behavior. Number two, repeating that behavior. And number three, reinforcing that behavior. Modeling it, repeating it, and reinforcing it. That's what parents need to be doing. You model it, you continue to model it over and over again, and then you reinforce it in a proper way when their children imitate you by doing what is right. He said that's the danger of television, though, by the way, too, because they do exactly that three-step process. And he, his argument is that they have greater influence than anybody else in our culture and our lives of our children, and that's probably true. 
But the bottom line is we need to warn them. But you know what else? We need to correct them. We need to correct them. Proverbs 3, look at verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. We read this. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof, which means his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. God continually corrects us by his word. And what he's saying to us is, hey, you know what? We need to correct, as parents, correct our children. And basically what that means is we need to, to convince them, to prove to them, to judge. And here's what it boils down to. And here's the argument in our culture all the time. Well, that's a value judgment. That's a value judgment. All right, so what? This is the amazing thing about parents. And here's where we've been duped into this, in this nonsense that's in our culture today. It's like, who are you as a parent to tell your children what is right and what is wrong? Okay? Who am I as a parent to tell my children what is right or what is wrong? And then they give you this. Let them decide for themselves. No, I don't think so. It may be a genetic thing as I look around my family, but I'm a little bit afraid to let them decide for themselves. Because I remember when I was... What, how many of your kids would decide when they would go to bed? What they would eat? I mean, I don't know about you. Maybe your family's different. But I'm afraid to let my kids decide this stuff. Because a few times we, we let it and, and we saw what happened. Bed? We don't need bed. Rest? We're kids. And to some degree that's true. They don't need as much, right? Right. You know, do you ever have them? Hey, how many of their kids ever stayed up late the next day? They're like the, the kids from, you know, <laughs> you know, they're scary, man. I mean, what can happen to them when they're cranky and tired? It gets really scary. You know, you don't turn your back to those kind of kids. But that's true, isn't it? I mean, you don't let them decide that. You don't let them decide what they're going to watch, what they're going to eat, when they're going to bed, uh, whether they go to school or not, whether or not who they're going to go they come in for their dates. That's so stupid. And yet we sit around thinking, oh, maybe they got a point. Oh, they don't have a point. That's, that's lunacy. You don't let them decide. And the Bible says we're supposed to correct them. Why? If you love your kids properly, you'll correct them. And you know what's all based on? This is the most wonderful thing about getting old. Grandparents, you've got a market on this. You know what it is? It's called experience. You have a market on it. As we get older, you, you've got that. You've got experience. Now, some of you, and here's the funny thing. You say, well, I didn't do it right. Good. Not that good you didn't do it right. Good that you knew you didn't do it right. Therefore, you knew what you did was wrong. So now you know the difference between right or wrong. That's good. That's experience. Now, what that means is you have something to share with your children or grandchildren by saying, you know what? I did it wrong, and these were the consequences. I would suggest that you do them right because you don't want to go through what I went through. You know what that's called? That's called imparting experience in the lives of young people who have never experienced it before. And the funny thing is we all think we're disqualified because we don't know all the answers. Well, you don't have to know all the answers. All you have to do is relate what you've gone through in your life in a proper way by saying, here's the experience. It's the old joke. You know, it's like, you know, there was a person that said, how'd you get such great judgment? So well, I got it from experience. Well, how'd you get the experience? Bad judgment. That's the cycle of life, folks. You get good judgment from experience and experience from bad judgment. That's the way that it goes. What are you supposed to warn your kids about? What are you supposed to correct them about? Hey, a lot of times, as, as we get older, we just tell it the way it was. Here's what I did. It was the dumbest thing I ever did. These were the consequences that we've lived with all of our life. And what I would suggest to you is, don't do the same thing. That's all you've got to say? Man, you know what? Why don't we just kind of lay it all out on the line sometimes? 
You know, wouldn't it be great if every person that went through a divorce that wasn't a biblical divorce would say, you know what, it was the worst thing I ever did, it was wrong, I should have never did it because I didn't understand what commitment was all about, I didn't understand, and all this garbage has trailed with me forever, and the baggage is still there, and you know what, wouldn't it be wonderful instead of trying to protect your image to be able to say, I was wrong, it was stupid, and it's been costly, and it's destroyed me emotionally, physically, financially, it's drained me, and you know what, I need to, I need to warn you about that. Stick to it. Wouldn't that be a wonderful culture to live in if we would all start to admit that the things that we did were wrong instead of trying to justify it and live with, silently with the consequences of it? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to warn kids that, hey, we had sex outside of marriage and it was devastating. It destroyed us emotionally. It made it hard for us to be intimate together when we finally got married, if we got married. I got this baggage that I'm carrying with me all the time. We're concerned about physical diseases. We're concerned about AIDS now and HIV and all the stuff we never heard about. And gee, you know what we thought all we'd have to do is take some penicillin and it would go away. And none of those things are true anymore. And it's scary and I need to be honest with you. It was the dumbest thing I ever did. It was wrong before God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have parents and grandparents as role models who said, I was wrong, I now know I was wrong, and please don't do the same thing, I beg you, because what God says is true. Man, we get a whole bunch of people in our culture that are giving out a contrary message that are trying to justify their actions as if there's no moral absolutes, and they're sending all our kids in the future generations into an absolute nightmare and abysmal mess in the years to come because they're handing out condoms in high schools and everything else, and we're going to deal with this when we talk about sexual disease in our culture. But what, what's happening here is we're not warning them that God's moral absolutes are true and that God is not mocked by sin which also goes along with the fifth thing, and that is if you really love your kids, you'll administer prompt discipline. You'll discipline them. If you're doing the wrong thing, you're going to pay the price. It's as simple as it goes. I love it. I love uh, when we were talking to this couple last week. You know what's amazing is it finally dawned on me that I'm getting a little older. I don't look it. I know, but, but I'm getting older. And, and, and to be able to sit with a young couple that has a two-year-old, now we've got you know, an 18, a 14, and a 12-year-old, and, and, and it's like we've gone through this thing and didn't even realize that it happened. You know? And all of a sudden you get experience because you've gone through all this. And then you hear their problems that they're having, and you kind of go, well, we used to have those, but here's what we did. And we were able to, to explain to them. And they were talking about discipline. And it was a great, here's a great illustration of it. This little girl, she's two years old. The mom potty trains her. The mom tells her, do you have to go to the bathroom? She says, no. Two seconds later, she pees all over the floor. All right? So the dad says, well, that's, that, you know, the dad says, well, you know what? That's not a problem. So, okay. Why isn't it a problem? Well, because she didn't mean to do it. And then the wife is explaining to the husband, well, when she peed to bed at night, I didn't, I didn't power her for that because that happens. Sometimes we have to learn not to give her so much to drink at night and we have to make sure she goes to the bathroom at night. So that's our responsibility, blah, blah. Very good. Very good insight on this young gal's part. But when I asked her to go to the bathroom and she said no, and then she peed immediately five minutes later, you know, I know she did that on purpose. And the husband's like, no. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, she did. Now, we don't know why she did it or if she just was looking for attention or if she was just at that age now where she's going to start testing you to see what you can get away with. And then as we talk longer, we find out she has a friend across the street, the little neighbor from who, who, who gets away with everything and anything. As her parents say, go pick that up, she goes, no. They go, go get that. No. You get it. And it's like, and this little girl's watching all this. And you go, oh, this is interesting. Now there's two ways to live, I see. I can just go along with, with the way my parents want me to go. Or I can go this direction, and I can be in control. See? So is she testing? Absolutely. So 
It was great. You can impart. You know what? You love your child, you discipline your child. You know what we used to do? We used to have a spoon. You know? Now our you know, now we serve soup, our kids freak out. <laughs> but anyway, you know what I was saying. You know, they'll, they'll use a fork. No, I have the fork, please. No, not the spoon. Please don't get the spoon. But we had a spoon. And, and my wife carried it everywhere that we went. It was great. You know, in case like, you know, a soup fest broke out. No. But, but she carried the spoon everywhere she went. Why? Because it didn't matter where we were. When our kids pulled that out in public, out in a restaurant, at somebody else's house, wherever it was, we had the spoon accessible. And if we forgot it, we could always borrow one. You know what I'm saying? And you know what wonderful thing is? Prompt discipline. We didn't wait till we got home. We didn't wait till later. You did it now. We'll take care of it now. Because now is when you're going to remember the most. Oh, you're going to do that at a restaurant? Absolutely. Take you right out to the parking lot. We'll take you into the bathroom. We'll take you somewhere, but we'll take you and we will get you. <laughs> and it was like, ooh. And then when we got older, the spoon didn't work, so we got a paddle. It was cool. Being a contractor, I had access to people who could make a nice wooden paddle. But we had the paddle, and we used the paddle. Why? Because God says, don't spare the rod. Why? Because if you do, you lead your children into an absolute nightmare of a lifestyle. That's our job. That's what we had to do. And it was amazing to sit and talk to this younger couple and realize we had some experience to offer. But it was based on the solid Word of God. Not because it worked for us, not because this is how we did it, but because we followed the outline that was laid out in the Bible and God's word is true. You see, that's what it's all about. If you love your child, you will treat them as blessings. Tell them you love them. Give them a hug. Tell them that, hey, you know what? I'm sorry if I made you feel like material things are more important to you because they're not. And in fact, when God calls me home, I can't wait to have you walk down and tell how much you miss me and how great I was as a dad or as a mom. And uh, here, let me write you down a few things in case you forget. You have compassion on them, you know? You, you expect perfection, but you accept humanity. There's a healthy tension between the two. And that's what's called instilling values in your children that they can take with them the rest of their life. Warn them of right or wrong. Warn them of the world that we live in. There are absolutes. There is a force out there that's, that's wicked and it's deceitful and it's trying to destroy them. And it's spiritual in nature, but they have to understand that. Correct them. Here, you did this wrong. Here's how you do it right and administer discipline. But also it's important that children respect their parents. You know, and if there's anything that we need to be teaching in our culture today, it's respect for authority once again. But the families to survive, we need parents that teach their children to respect their parents. Ephesians 6, 2 and 3, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on this earth. The Bible clearly teaches, you know what? We need to instill in our children a respect for authority, and it starts at home. A respect for authority that starts at home. That's where it all begins. Let me tell you something, folks. You are dreaming. You are living in, in a fog. Your head is in the ground. If you think that your kids can show disrespect to you at home, whether it's to their mother or to their father, and then they're going to go out into the world that we live in and show respect to an employer, to show respect to a coach, to show respect to law enforcement, to show respect to government. And you know what? In essence, what it is is if your parents, if your kids don't respect you, they don't respect God because it's a commandment of God that you honor your father and your mother. It starts at home. It means you earn their respect, number one, by being a role model before them. 
Because there's nothing that a kid doesn't respect, that, that will disrespect any quicker than a person that talks out of both sides of their mouth. You live it, they'll respect it. You role model it, they'll respect it. They'll see it. But they need to see it. We had a Bible study several years ago, and it was, most, it was something that made a tremendous impression on my life, not to mention the man who shared it. But he said that when he was a kid, he was probably eight or nine years old, he got up to go to the bathroom, get a drink, whatever, and he saw the light on in the kitchen of his house. And he walked down the hallway, and he peeked in. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. He peeked in the kitchen, and he saw at the table, kneeling down in front of a chair, with the chair turned this way, and on the table, in front of the table, the chair was turned around, kneeling in front of the chair with the Bible open and praying was his dad. <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was the whole story. Talk about an impression that it made. Talk about something that changed this man's life forever. He saw his dad at 3 o'clock in the morning, a man who said he loved God, a man who said he loved the Word of God, a man who said he, was, he wanted to be more obedient because obedience was better than sacrifice. A man who lived out vividly everything he said he believed and everything that he taught to his children. At 3 o'clock in the morning, when he wasn't putting on a show for anybody, just him and God in dialogue, conversation, reading the Word of God and praying for his family. This boy saw his dad and it made an impression for the rest of his life. You want to gain respect as a parent? Man. How are you living? What are you doing? What are you saying behind the scenes? Coming to church, get all dressed up, bring your Bible, bring your family. That's good. That's a start. But you know what? Where it really matters is what you're doing at home. When I don't see it, when you don't see it, when the person next to you doesn't see it, but the people you work with see it, the people you pay your bills to see it, your husband, your wife sees it behind closed doors, your kids see it. That's what this is all about. That's what learning and studying the Word of God is all about. Not having somebody stand in front of you and tell you what's right and then not live it themselves. I've got to do the same thing. I'm convicted about it every day. Every time I stand up and say what I say, am I applying it in my life? Because if not, I can't stand here and do this. It's, it's a mockery. It's not right. I'm not perfect either. But I'll tell you what. If I'm confronted and I'm doing something wrong, I would hope that I'd bend my knee before God and ask for forgiveness. And before my wife and before my kids and before people I work with, people I associate with. God, help us to understand that this is what it's all about. This is a role model. If your children are going to respect you, then you need to earn their respect. Telling them that you're their mom or dad isn't going to quite do it. You respect me because I'm your dad. Well, maybe that's true, but man, it'd be a lot easier to respect you if you were a godly man. I still have to respect you. You're my dad. I don't have to agree with you, and I don't have to do what you say if it's contrary to the Word of God. But man, it sure is a lot easier to respect someone that loves God and lives it. Hi, ladies. Same thing with you. These are tough things, man, but it's what it's all about. Also, we talked about this, but the fourth, third thing is that we need to discipline our children lovingly. You know, and I talk about spanking our kids. I talk about doing that. And I, and, and I, don't, I don't say these things flippantly because, man, I'll tell you what, there are many a times when I spanked my kids that I walked out with a tear in my eye and walked around the corner and I was just brokenhearted. This isn't something you rejoice in, you take delight in. It's not something God takes delight in when he goes and whoops us or takes us to the woodshed. It breaks his heart every time we sin against him because there's a, there's a, there's a price to be paid. There's pain, there's suffering involved in all of it. 
I make a joke about it, but there was nothing ever funny about it. But that children, that, that parents discipline their children lovingly. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't grab them, don't slap them, don't throw them around, don't choke them, don't throw them across the room, don't beat it into them. Man, you know what? I mean, that's the world that we live in. That's how you discipline a kid. No, it's not. That's how you abuse somebody. And the Bible says bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, which means two things. One is, is that we discipline them, but two is we let them know what the discipline's based upon. It's based upon the solid word of God. Here's what you're violating. Here's what God has to say. Here's the price that you're going to pay, whether it's being paddle, whether it's a curfew, whether it's whatever it is that you do to discipline them. And there's the two go hand in hand, but they need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's not based on what we think or what we say. It's based upon what God requires of us as parents. And we live our lives in subjection to the authority of God, and we're trying to teach you to do the same thing. This is what it's all about. It's not personal. This isn't a personal battle. You're on loan to us from God. All we're doing is managing while we have you here. And this is our job to do this. And then the last thing, and we'll close on this, is that we need parents that train their children faithfully. And training involves very specifically just the Word of God. Teaching them the Word of God. Training them instructing them the things of God. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. What a great promise of God. If we do things the way God says to do it, then God takes all the responsibility for the end result. You do what I tell you to do, and I'll worry about the end result. That's the promise of God. What a wonderful thing. What a great promise to hang our hats on sometimes when we've got kids that are kind of going their own direction and you can't figure out why it is they're doing it or what you did wrong or whatever. But as you look back with a life of no regrets, we did the best that we could do with the knowledge that we had of the Word of God at the time we did it and we did the best that we could. And now, God, you know our hearts and we'll just trust you that you honor that. I want to close with, a, with an article that I ran across that... Uh, that kind of summarizes everything that we're talking about because it took place in Houston, uh, Texas 30 years ago. This is 30 years ago. Oh, no, I'm sorry, 40 years ago. Houston was having a problem with crime in their juvenile division, and they went through with a, um, with, with a, with a campaign, and they placed these on billboards, and they were all over the city, and they had pertinent messages to parents about raising their families. And one of the most well-received messages was a pamphlet that was entitled, 12 Rules for Raising Delinquent Children. And this sums it all up. Number one, begin with infancy to give the child everything that he wants. In this way, he'll grow up to believe that the world owes him a living. Number two, when he picks up bad words, laugh at him. This will make him think he's cute. Number three, never give him any spiritual training. Wait till he's 21 and then let him decide for himself. Number four, avoid the use of, quote, wrong. It may develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later when he's arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he is being unjustly persecuted. Pick up everything he leaves lying around. Do everything for him so that he will be experienced in throwing all responsibility onto the shoulders of others. Let him read any printed material or printed matter he gets his hands on. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but let his mind feast on any garbage that he wants. Oh, which is a reminder. Next week, we're going to do a thing on pornography. Number seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children. In this way, they won't be so shocked when their home is broken up later. Give a child all the spending money once, never let him earn his own. Satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort so that every sensual desire is gratified immediately. Take his part against neighbors, teachers, coaches, and policemen. After all, they're all prejudiced against your child. 
when he gets into real trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, you know, we can never do anything with him. Number 12, prepare for a life of grief. You will likely to have it. You know what all these rules are? Twelve ways of saying don't be strict with your, with your kids. We need to redefine the word strict because the way the Bible defines it, I guess, is that strict means very narrow in our viewpoint of life. But God said, and Jesus said it very clearly, that you know what? There's a broad way of destruction, but there's only a narrow way, and that's God's ways. For man's ways are not God's ways, and man's thoughts are not God's thoughts. And we need to understand that God is very narrow-minded. But I like that because the parameters that he gives us are what we are to live within. And we need families. We need men and women. We need parents that love their children properly. We need parents that teach their children to respect adults, authority, because it will benefit them all of their life. We need parents that will discipline their children lovingly. And we need parents that will communicate the word of God and train their children faithfully. For if we chain up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity to look at your word. God, help us to understand the importance of our families as it pertains to the survival of our society. God, over the last few sessions, we saw the importance of marriage, what it means to be committed to one another. God knows in our culture there's so many broken marriages, there's so many second marriages and third marriages. God, I just pray that today, that for anyone who's gone through all of that, that there would be forgiveness for their past, that there would be a sense of conviction and commitment to understand what it means to be married for a lifetime. God, we know that you're a God that removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And every day is a new day. Every day is a new opportunity or a new beginning. God, help all of us who have sinned and done things that are wrong before you in all these areas, whether it was in discipline, whether it's in teaching our kids they were a burden instead of a blessing, whether it was not in proper training, whether whatever it was. Maybe we're not good role models. God, help us today to understand that we are forgiven as we confess our wrong before you. But God, also give us a renewed sense of what we need to do from this day forward. Not to have a license to live as we please, thinking that you'll forgive us, but understand that sin is overrated and undercalculated and that there's a tremendous price and a toll that society pays on our disobedience. Help us in our own families as parents and grandparents to become the role models that we're supposed to be. To, to display that behavior, to repeat it re- continually and then to reinforce it. God, we just thank you that we can count on your promises and trust you that if we do these things, then we can count on the fact that our children are in your hands And when they're old, they will not depart from it. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.